Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The bottom line issue here, the age-abiding principle and render unto God the things that are God's is if we're not living for God, if we're not in a right relationship with God, we are missing the very purpose for which we've been created. That's why he says, offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Offer the sacrifice of praise. What we offer to him is, is ourselves. Happy Friday and welcome to a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled The Peril of Religion Without Relationship. We're now in Luke chapter 20 and today Sam will take us through verse 26. Our focus today will be Jesus having his authority questioned, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, and Jesus addressing the Pharisees when they tried to trap him with their questions about taxation. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 20 title of our study this morning the peril of religion without relationship we posed the question last time what would you do if you knew this was your last week on the planet and we're seeing jesus in his last week and it's why it's so very important what's he been doing well he headed into and through bethany and ministered to needy people on the outskirts and in the city itself, he rode down uh, there with his disciples, as we saw last time on Palm Sunday. He allowed himself to be publicly worshipped. He goes in, he cleanses the temple. Now, as we pick up here in chapter 20, verse 1, it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. We pause there just to say, here's what Jesus is doing his last week. And he knows it's his last week. He's teaching the people in the temple courts. He's preaching the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is in their midst. Now, they did ask Billy Graham at one point, hey, what would you do if you knew this was your last day to, uh, to live? He said, man, I'd preach the gospel. And they asked my pastor, Chuck Smith, what would you do if you knew this was your last day to live? He said, I'd teach a Bible study. And they asked Mike McIntosh, some of you know him, you listen to him on the radio on our station. They asked him, what would you do if you knew this was the last day? He said, I'd tell some stories. Well, if you haven't heard him, then you don't know why that's, you know, probably true. And, and, and so the bottom line is you should check him out. Excellent storyteller, excellent Bible teacher. But the point is, whatever Billy Graham is about, whatever Pastor Chuck's about, whatever Mike's about, well, they're going to be doing just what they do on that day. And I would like to suggest the same is true for you. If you knew you only had one more day, you should be doing the thing you're doing today because none of us know that we'll be here tomorrow. And, and so for our Lord, it's clear. He's cleansed the temple. He's teaching the people. He's preaching the gospel. And we're told that during all this, the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? The chief priest, the scribes, the elders, they are the spiritual, moral, and civil leaders of Israel. And actually, the question here is a good one. These guys are charged with watching over the flock of God. They're gatekeepers, as it were. And so the question is absolutely legitimate and well within the scope of their responsibility. The problem is they're insincere in asking it. 
They've already decided Jesus is not sent from the Father. He is not the Son of God. He is not the Savior. He's not the Messiah, at least in their minds. So they're coming with the legitimate question, but with illegitimate intentions. The answer to this is relatively simple. Who gives Jesus his authority? The Father. He'll later say it. All authority is given to me in heaven and or on earth and in heaven above. The Father gave authority to the Son. Now listen, he's the Son of God. He could have just said, hey, I do what I want. If anyone had a right to it would be him. But even Jesus shows us the importance of being submitted to the authority that God places over us. By the way, Jesus' authority over demons, over disease, over death, his authority to forgive, to judge, to teach. He'd say, you've heard it has been said, but I say unto you. And they could have been referring to any and all of those things, but I think they're referring more specifically to, well, his allowing himself to be publicly worshiped there on Palm Sunday, and then his cleansing of the temple. Who gives you a right to do these kinds of things? That's what they're asking. Well, his answer to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus is suggesting there are only two possibilities when it came to John the Baptist ministry. He was either sent by the Father or he was sent by men. Well, they knew they didn't send him, but they're not going to acknowledge, well, he's sent by the Father. Why? Well, here's the way they reason. As they hear the question, they reasoned among themselves, verse 5, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? In other words, John preaches, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, these guys, well, they should have either believed John and responded by repenting, by being publicly baptized as a sign of their repentance, or they should have rebuked and shut John down. Again, they're responsible for the spiritual welfare of the flock of God, the children of God, Israel at this point. And, and so doing nothing wasn't an option, and that's exactly what they did. They couldn't stop him because they saw the people believed in him, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge that John told the truth because he didn't just say repent. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as they're reasoning among themselves, discussing this, they say, hey, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why don't you believe him? And if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. How did they come to be persuaded of that? They watched his lifestyle. They, they listened to the things he said. They saw the fruit of his ministry. They realized God was working in and through John. And the same thing is true as people observe you. Most of us don't feel like we're the best witness we could be. I mean, I don't even want to say anybody think you're the best witness you could be because you're going to raise your hand and then we're going to get in an argument. But, but uh, we don't want to do that here. But the, the issue is this. We know that we're not the best we could be, but nevertheless, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. God is using us. And the, the, um, the easier it is as, you know, for him is this, if we'll just submit ourselves and do what he tells us to do with the attitude that glorifies him, doing his thing, his way for his glory. Hey, people are going to see the Lord in us. And that's what was happening with John. The people believed John was from God. And of course, they were right. So the, the, the religious leaders here are told by Jesus, I'm not going to tell you. And now 
that's interesting to me as someone who studied through all of the scripture. And, and I've noticed that Jesus always responded to every question and every need unless it was brought by someone insincere. And even in the case of the insincere, if there were others around, often he'd deal with the issue so that those who were listening in could at least learn from it. But he just tells these guys, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Why? These guys had real heart problems. The real issue with them was a problem of the heart. And uh, like the church at Ephesus, which we read in Revelation chapter 2, they were doing all the right things. If you watch their lives, they looked very spiritual, but their hearts were far from the Lord. That was the case of these guys. They were, they were going to the temple. They were teaching and ministering. They were celebrating the feast and the, the festivals. They were outwardly religious and appeared to be righteous. The big problem is their hearts, as Jesus tells us, were far from God. When it came to the church at Ephesus, a similar situation, I bring it to our attention because, well, it can happen to us. We can be doing all the right things for the right reasons. And over time, we continue to do the right things, but we forget why we're doing them. We forget that it's all about a relationship with the one who made us and loved us and proved his love by sending his son to die for us, to reconcile us to himself. So it's not just about doing what's right, it's, it's doing it for the right reasons, to please him, to glorify him, to be useful and fruitful for him. Well, in any case, Jesus says, I'm not gonna tell you then because of these things. Now, he takes us as we get into verse nine on from the root of the problem, and that's what's revealed in the first eight verses, their heart issue, the root. Now he goes to the fruit of the problem with the parable that we know as the parable of the vineyard. Well, it's helpful to know that God in Isaiah 5, identifies Israel as his vineyard. And, and basically what he does is he said, hey, I dug it out, I prepared it, I, I, I blessed it, I planted the vines, and, and I expected to get a good crop, but I didn't. Instead of good fruit, I got wild fruit. And in it's Isaiah 5, 7, let me read it to you. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So with that as background, knowing that they are going to know he's talking about them. In fact, at the end of the parable, it says they knew he was talking about them. So he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, went to a far country for a long time. At vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out." Now, everyone listening knew Israel's history. They knew that God gave his people the law. And if they obeyed the law, he promised to bless them in every way. And if they disobeyed it, he promised that they would suffer, that he'd shut up the heavens and there'd be no rain and that would bring famine. And, and as those things started to happen, he said, then just cry out to me and I'll hear from heaven and I'll respond. When that failed to happen, he sent them prophets. And instead of listening to the prophets who came saying, thus says the Lord, repent. That was the basic message of the prophets. They, they, they murdered and martyred these 
prophets. It's probably where that saying, don't kill the messenger came from, you know. These guys come saying, thus saith the Lord, and they're like, kill him right now. And, and that actually happened. And so as he's telling this little story, everyone's going, I get this. Yeah, this is our history. That's exactly what's happened. Well, he goes on to say, then the owner of the vineyard said, verse 13, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Now, fewer are tracking at this point, but some certainly are. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When did the father send his son or the owner send his son? Well, he'd done it at the very time Jesus is saying these things. He's telling the story like it all already happened. But this part is being fulfilled at the very moment. These religious leaders had planned to put Jesus to death. They had purpose that it wouldn't happen during the feast, lest there be a big uproar. Mentioned last time, Jesus was forcing their hand because he's on the Father's timetable, not theirs. His hour had come. And as he rode into Jerusalem and allowed the people to publicly worship him, they realized we've got to put an end to this and we've got to put an end to this now. Well, in any case, here's the heir. Let's kill him then the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. By the way, this is prophetic in that Jesus would be crucified outside the city gates. Well, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He doesn't wait for their answer. He gives them an answer to this question. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's exactly what happens, by the way. Israel is his vineyard. He judges them. He sets them aside. He pours the spirit out on the church and begins to use us just as he did them. His intentions are the same. Good fruit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. He's wanting all that from us. And what happens is if we're unfaithful as they were, well, he won't set the entire church aside. He will set the individual aside. Paul called it being shelved, put on the shelf. He prayed that that would never happen to him. So he knew it could happen. And the issue here is, as Jesus says, uh, you know, that he's going to take away the vineyard. Well, how can that happen? That's them. They said in response, latter part of verse 16, certainly not. No way, Lord, that's not going to happen. And he looked at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, because it's just, you know, a stone which the builders rejected, chief cornerstone, it doesn't mean that much to us, but it meant a lot to them. Here's why. Not only is this a prophecy of the rejection of God's Messiah, but it comes out of the same passage, Psalm 118, that, that last time when we saw him riding down into Jerusalem, remember? And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. It was always sung at the Passover, but usually as you would be ascending the steps into the city. And this time he's descending from the Mount of Olives down into the city. But as that that declaration was being made. They understood they're heralding him as the, the son of God, the savior of the world, the Messiah. And here he's quoting from that very same psalm saying the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Oh, they fully got this. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. 
On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And if that's our only two choices, hey, break me, Lord, because I don't want you to grind me. And then it says, uh, verse 19, the chief priests and scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but fearing the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Well, what did they decide to do in response? They watched him. Verse 20, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. They pretended to be righteous. Let me suggest to you that there is only one real righteousness. It's it can only be obtained by having it imparted to us, imputed to us, that, that our righteousness is the righteousness that we have because of our faith in Christ. In fact, we sing it here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So our righteousness is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's the only righteousness we have. So, of course, they were pretending to be righteous Everyone was pretending at this point because the only righteousness they could have would come from Jesus. But this is why this is so tragic. These are the religious leaders pretending to be righteous instead of acknowledging they were unrighteous, responding to John the Baptist, siding with God against themselves by repenting and being baptized. Well, here they are pretending to be righteous. And they come saying, teacher, we know you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Take note of what they say. We know you say and teach rightly. That's true. You do not show personal favoritism. That's true. But teach the way of God in truth. That's true too. So what's the problem? Everything they're saying is true, but the reason for saying it is wrong. They're just flattering him. They're just buttering him up. Now, that's not going to work with Jesus. You know, it, it might work with me and it might work with you. You know, people come up and start saying all this stuff that makes you feel really good about yourself. And then all of a sudden you, you feel the knife, you know, and you're back and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That's what's going on here. The only difference is Jesus couldn't be tricked or trapped. So we need to learn from it because this is one of the ways the enemy of our souls works against us. He'll just bring people to flatter us. Oh, you're so spiritual. You're so good. You're such a man or woman of prayer. You're this, you're that. And you're like, well, yeah, you know, I'm kind of humble. But yeah, I guess most of that's true. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not true. Our righteousness is in him or we would have none. Yes, we pray. But hey, do you know that people that don't know the Lord pray too? They just don't pray to the true and living God. So it isn't about what we do. It's why we're doing it and, and who we're connecting with as we do it. Well, in any case, here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Again, we come up against this issue this time. Do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? We were kind of joking around after the service last week. And I joked and, and at this very service, you know, I had mentioned that, you know, no one will ever acknowledge they work for the IRS. There actually was a guy who works for the IRS and probably here again now. And, and uh, it was kind of cool because his wife, not him, first came up and said, hey, my husband works for the IRS, but she'll tell you or he'll tell you it's the Treasury Department. 
And so uh, I'm not busting them. I'm just saying, you know, that's what she said. And but but here's the irony. I was joking around with Rich Lang and some of the other guys in between the services. And uh, and I, I mentioned that, you know, you could pretty much write a check to, and write anything on it and the IRS will cash it. And Rich said, I actually wrote my check to Caesar once and they cashed it. And so so uh, they don't care. That's the issue, you see. But but uh, the question here is, do we need to pay our taxes? And the answer is, of course, whose inscription is on there? And by the way, I mean, we're not giving George Washington our dollars or, you know, I don't know who's on all our denominations. I don't keep track of that. But uh, the, the, uh, George is on the dollar, right? How did he get how did he get the, the lowest one? I mean, he's like the father of the nation. They give him the dollar. I mean, give him, you know, the hundred, some big money or something. But anyway. He's just saying, is it lawful to pay taxes? Of course it's lawful. It's even right to do so. Paul will make that case in Romans 13. If you're still struggling or looking for a loophole, you're not going to find it. Render to God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. So, so the issue is he says, well, just show me the coin. Look at it. Whose inscription? Whose image? It's Caesar. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But render to God the things that are God's. Now I love this because you know as well as I that we were created in the image of God. And though the image was marred by sin, God immediately set out not just to redeem, but to restore the glory of his creation, the crown of his creation. And he does that by, by sending his son to suffer and die for our sin. All of the sacrifices from the first offered by Adam and Eve and, and then those offered by Abel. And you know Cain and Abel come and Abel's accepted. Every blood sacrifice, sacrifice points us to Jesus' sacrifice. And, and the communion we'll share in later today. Well, it, it points us again to the cross and the blood he shed. So he says you know, perceiving their craftiness. I like that because he could always see through people. And by the way, that word craftiness is used of, of Satan tricking Eve that he was crafty and subtle and, and the way he approached her and dealt with her. But Jesus could see what she couldn't see. So why do you test me? Show me the denarius, whose image, whose inscription and then he says it, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, the things that are God's to God. And, and they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. The bottom line issue here, the age abiding principle and render unto God the things that are God's is if we're not living for God, if we're not in a right relationship with God, we are missing the very purpose for which we've been created. That's why he says, offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Offer the sacrifice of praise. What we offer to him is, is ourselves and all we have and, and every breath and, and every thought and we're to bring him into conformity and, and we're to, to speak and live to bring him glory. For the last couple of broadcasts, Pastor Sam has asked the question, what would you do if it was your last week on the planet? Well, I think it's easy to answer that with what we think we would do or what we should do. But honestly, wouldn't it really depend on whether we were going to die or whether we were going to be raptured? Now, if we somehow had foreknowledge of the rapture, we would most certainly be about making sure as many people as possible got right with the Lord, including ourselves. I know personally, I would be stoked. 
I believe most everyone listening to this broadcast would be crazy busy with the business of our Lord, and most of our earthly responsibilities would probably be forgotten. If we were given, however, the foreknowledge of our own demise, I think many of us would struggle mightily with grief for our own lives and those we leave behind. If we truly want to be free of the fear of death, though, a good verse to consider is Matthew 10.39, where it says, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This just says that if you have given your life to Jesus, the day of death is going to actually be when you find out once and for all just what our Lord has in store for you, and it's going to be an unbelievable experience. Knowing this certainly will allow you to spend the final days of your life in the most productive way possible for Jesus. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.